Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, and whether you call Collective your church home or you are just checking us out, we hope you are encouraged and inspired to take the next step in your journey toward the grace and truth of Jesus. For more information about Collective, you can visit us online at mycollective.church or follow us on social media at mycollectivechurch. Now, let's get into today's message. Welcome to church. It's a great day to be here. My name is CT. We are not operating as normal. We are usually down the hall in the gym, but they are refinishing the floors to make it a really safe and awesome play space for the kids during the school year. But don't worry, this is only for today. We are back to normal in the future. But to get us started today, I want to take us back to Sunday, June 9th, just about a month ago, San Francisco, California. A three-game series between the San Francisco Giants and the Los Angeles Dodgers was concluding, and it was a low-scoring affair with the Dodgers winning the game one to nothing. Now, for those of you who don't know about baseball or don't care about baseball, I'm just going to clue you in. These two teams are rivals, and they do not like each other. The Dodgers this year are one of the best teams in baseball. They're young, they're exciting, they're passionate, they're talented. And the Giants are one of the worst teams in baseball, living in the shadow of what used to be when they won the World Series in 2010, 2012, and 2014. The rivalry started in New York where both teams were originally located. It was an East Coast battle that moved West Coast when both teams transitioned West and it quickly turned from East Coast into a SoCal Northern California rivalry with both fan bases heatedly backing their teams. Beyond baseball, the cities themselves don't like each other as well. If you ask a San Francisco native what they think of those people down south, they'll tell you that's where you go to get overpriced plastic surgery, and that's where they steal all of our water for their perfectly manicured yards. But talk to L.A. natives, and they'll talk about those people up north, and they're snobby, and they have their nose stuck up in the air because they think they're richer and better and smarter than everybody else. I didn't make those up. That was in a CBS News article that I found this week. So needless to say, I can't repeat here the popular chants in the stands when the two teams meet. And unfortunately, the rivalry has spilled onto the field as well as fans attending away games have been seriously beaten and even killed for going to the game. Still more, there was a guy who was a general manager for the Dodgers. The Giants hired him away, gave him a big stack of money and a fancy title. Basically, they said, hey, we see what you're doing down there, and you're really relevant. Come up here and make us relevant again. Now, all of this is to say when the Giants and Dodgers play baseball, if you are even a casual baseball fan, it's worth worth tuning into, and June 9th was no different. The one to nothing score was a solo home run courtesy of a guy named Max Muncy. The pitcher, Madison Bumgarner, who gave up the home run, had a problem with Max Muncy because apparently Max Muncy stood and stared at his home run a little bit too long before he starts to round the bases. Now, in Muncy's defense, he didn't just hit a home run, he hit it out of the entire stadium into the bay. But Bumgarner, again, using words that I can't really use here in a not-so-nice way, encourages Max Muncy to start rounding the bases and stop staring at his home run. 
There's this unwritten rule in baseball. If you hit a home run, don't show up the pitcher. Just put your head down and run around the bases. This unwritten rule is broken. So there's, there's a stare down and there's chirping back and forth as Muncie's rounding first base and second base and third base. And as he's on his way home, conveniently passing right by pitcher Bumgarner, he gives a fantastic quote. I love what he says. If you don't want me to watch the ball, you can go get it out of the ocean. And it's picked up on cameras live. Social media goes crazy with it. Before the game is even over, a new addition is etched into the rivalry with t-shirts that are selling like crazy in Southern California right now. And this is just a microcosm of what's happening in baseball right now. Guys like Bumgarner, who consider themselves to be purists, think that the new school guys are ruining the game. Old guys are mad. The new kids are ruining the game. Does that sound familiar? They play with too much flash and charisma and energy. They stare at their home runs. They flip their bats. They lick their bats, which is kind of weird but also kind of cool. But they play with way too much energy for the purists. And it's grown to be such national attention among baseball circles that baseball itself started a campaign around the slogan, Let the Kids Play. Personally, I'm a huge Chicago Cubs fan. Uh, If you are a Chicago Cubs fan, if you know baseball, you know all-star shortstop Javier Baez. He is a flashy player. He wears a big chain. He stares at his home runs. He has no-look tags that he applies when base runners are trying to steal. He's even been known to wag a finger in people's bases when they don't steal the base because he tags them out. Baez makes the game more exciting. It's more fun to watch when he is in the game. But the story, Muncie versus Bumgarner, old school versus new school, sets us up perfectly for our series, Ruin the Game. It also sets us up really well to take a look at the Bible today, which really introduces some very important topics for all of us. Number one, why did Jesus come to earth? Why are there so many sucky, judgmental Christians? We'll talk about it. What do I have to do to find Jesus? And perhaps most importantly, does Jesus really notice me? Like at the end of the day, does he even care about me? And if you don't consider yourself a Christian and you're not sure about all this, you picked a really good day to be here because maybe you too have wondered about Christians or had bad experiences with Christians And that's made you wonder, I don't know if I want to be one of them at all. Maybe you've never really considered the depth of care that Jesus has for you. We're going to look at all that today in the Bible. The Bible was written by dozens of men over a period of thousands of years. And the book that we're looking at today is a book called Luke. When Jesus was alive, Luke was one of Jesus' closest followers and friends, knew him better than just about anybody. And so after Jesus died and rose again, Luke wrote down his transcription, his narrative of the events of Jesus' life, hence the name Luke. And one of the big narratives that is revealed time after time in the book of Luke, you see Jesus showing compassion to people on the bottom rung of society. He eats meals with with sinners, specifically tax collectors. He heals those with leprosy. Now, leprosy is a disease that is so contagious. Once you get it, you're expelled to a part of town to live, wait to die, so that you don't infect the rest of the town. Jesus was intentional about spending time with people on the bottom rung of society. 
And those in authority in that day, they're called the Pharisees. They didn't like that, and they see Jesus as a challenge to their authority, and they don't like the fact that he is spending time with the people on the bottom rung of society. That's exactly what we see in today's story as well. So our story comes from the book of Luke, chapter 7, verses 36 through 46. We're going to open up with the first verse. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him, so Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. Before we get too long, we're going to put the brakes on. We want to dig into the cultural context to understand what's happening. Increased knowledge of the part of the Bible that we're looking at gives us a better picture to understand the Bible. So I encourage you, whether you read it or whether you love Jesus or not, reread it again this week on your own. Ancient Middle Eastern hospitality, where the story takes place, demanded three things when you welcomed a guest into your home. First, you would give them a friendly kiss. Second, you washed their feet. And three, you put fragrant oil on them. Simon skipped all three tokens of respect when Jesus entered into his house. This man, Simon, he is a Pharisee. He's top dog in the food chain. First of all, he is a man. He's honored. He's privileged. He has the right job. Everybody looks at him and respects him. We know this is true specifically because the author, Luke, gives Simon a name. He calls him out by name. And every Pharisee worth their salt did three things. They fasted. They tithed money to a local synagogue, think local church, and they prayed at least three times a day. And we know that this is important because a few weeks ago we learned if you say, hey, I follow Jesus, Jesus expected you to do those three things on a regular basis. So Simon can say, check, 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 look at what a great person I am. His relationship as a Pharisee with Jesus could be described as distant and formal. He invited Jesus to his home for dinner, probably thinking that this was going to be some really cool theological conversation. I'm a Pharisee. I am very intellectually smart. I know all about the Bible. This guy is wise. He knows all about the Bible. Let's get together and have a very intellectual conversation. But Simon has no real need for Jesus. He projects an air of having it all together because he doesn't want his friends, his fellow Pharisees, to think that he's going overboard to accommodate this guy Jesus. So with that in mind, we're going to catch the rest of the story, verses 37 through 46. So when a certain immoral woman from the city heard that he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt down behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited himself saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to tell you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Jesus tells him a story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces of silver to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave both of, the de- both of them canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answers, I suppose, the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. 
When I entered your home, you didn't offer me any water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the first time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with her perfume. The woman has no name in the story, and that's not on accident. She is on the bottom rung of society. Our author Luke doesn't consider her important enough to give a name, nor does he name her sin. We know very little about this woman. That's because she is unmarried, and she has a public reputation for being a sinner. So these three people, Jesus and Simon and the woman, are all on very opposite ends of the social structure of the day. Switching gears just a little bit to understand how dinner happened in that context. We get together, we sit at a table with some chairs, and we get together, we eat, we look at each other. They actually didn't sit at all when they had dinner together. They would face their head towards the table while leaning on their left elbow and point their feet away from the table, kind of leaning back. And so when the book says that she was behind him, this is because the way his body was positioned, this is all that she could do to get close to him. So she plans to just slip in, do her thing, and leave. But as she gets there, the emotion takes over her. This guy that she has presumably heard about, she is in the room with him, and it turns into an emotional experience. She begins to cry. Some tears form. They fall down her cheeks. And then more tears, so much so that Luke says she wet his feet with her tears. Today, we would say she ugly cried. Like body convulsing, shaking, sobbing. She ugly cried in front of Jesus onto his feet. If you've been around somebody when that happens, normally it's because somebody they love has passed away. Something traumatic happens. The moments that change your life forever, but not in a good way. This is the mindset of the woman. She cried so hard and for so long at Jesus' feet that they became wet. So she lets down her hair and dries his feet with her hair. And then she kisses his feet. Like she puts her lips on somebody else's feet, a stranger's feet. She willingly does this. If you were here last week, you might be having flashbacks right now to the Would You Rather Eat a Plate of Boogers versus Lick a Toilet Seat. If you weren't here last week, you should check it out. It's a great sermon. But kissing of feet, there's a dude named Alfred Plummer. He spent his whole entire professional life learning all about the Bible. And he says that the kissing of feet is a common mark of deep reverence. I love my wife. I would borderline say I revere her. I'm not kissing her feet. Like, that is gross. <laughs> Normally, when I hear this preached about, the pastor will get up and they'll share a story. They went on a trip to a third world country. And after that experience, we now understand what dirty feet are. Normally, there's children involved somehow for emotional appeal, too. As if you go 3,000 miles away and come back with a story about dirty, stinky feet. Like, we don't understand what dirty, stinky feet are all about. Listen, I'm just saying this because it's true. If you can pass on a steak knife because your toenails would do the trick, that's gross. I've seen it. This is July in Maryland, okay? Put socks and shoes outside for five minutes. You don't have feet anymore. You got wet, limp noodles hanging off the end of your ankles, we get gross feet. We don't need you going 3,000 miles away to tell us about that. 
getting semi-serious here for a minute, Jesus was a real dude. He was a guy. He didn't sweat rose petals. There was no such thing as Old Spice back then. His feet were gross too. They were nasty. And if you feel a little bit like tossing cookies, so much talking about feet, guess what? The woman willingly put her face in Jesus' gross, nasty feet. Getting for real serious here and getting into some of the why behind her actions, the story is rich and it has so much meaning. We can't uncover all of it in the time that we have today. But no matter who you are, if you love God or if you're far from God, this is your first Sunday here or your 100th Sunday here, there are a few points of emphasis that are important for all of us in the room. First, Jesus out-intellects the intellectual with his story about two people who both owe money, one ten times the other. Remember, the Pharisee is very, very smart. He's educated, and he tells a story, and maybe Simon's sitting there, and he's thinking, Jesus, about time you recognize that this woman is ten times worse than I am. Thank you for finally giving me some credit. But in his response, he admits his own debt as well. It doesn't matter if you're in 50 feet of water or 500 feet of water. Drowning is drowning. Everybody in this room is in constant need of God to forgive our sins, our debt. It doesn't matter how much you know about the Bible or how little you know about the Bible. If your sin is 10 times greater or 10 times less than the person sitting right next to you, we all need Jesus. Simon the Pharisee included needs Jesus. The book of Romans chapter 3 tells us that there is no one who is righteous, none. Specifically, we need what Jesus gave us when he died on the cross, the forgiveness of our sins. Next, in verse 44, Jesus asks kind of an amusing question. He looks at Simon and he says, hey, do you see this woman? I can promise you. From the moment she entered the room, Simon was aware of her presence. Just to break this down again, a woman is bolly-booing fits of tears onto Jesus' feet. She lets her hair down and wipes that. And this is all incredibly outside the cultural norm of the day. If a woman came and did this to me, I would be extremely uncomfortable and embarrassed and nervous. My wife would not be having it. It would be a wild but captivating scene. This is the car wreck that everybody stares by as they're driving. Simon the Pharisee was aware of her presence, but he didn't actually see her. Jesus was about to model her as an example for the Pharisee to follow because Jesus knew that she had something he didn't. Took a lot of courage for this woman to come out into this gathering. It's not just the Pharisee, it's fellow Pharisees as well. She knew she'd have to endure stares, whispers, public humiliation, but she does it anyway. And the bottom line is... It was incredibly hard for this woman to find Jesus because of the religious leaders of the day. The religious people, they mocked, they sneered, they stared, and they whispered about her. And when I hear that, the first thing I think of is, ouch, that sounds like some churches that exist today. That sounds like some crappy judgmental Christians that exist today. But taking that a step further, ouch, that sounds like me at times in my life today. I've been reading a book the last couple of weeks about extreme poverty in America, specifically people in our own nation that live on less than $2 a day. And the author follows people around and just kind of documents their journey 
And some of the people that they follow along is the primarily black south side of Chicago and the mostly white southern Appalachia of Kentucky and Tennessee. If someone came in today with no teeth because of lack of access to health care and they smelled bad, would you hide your kids? What would your assumptions about that person be? That is the 21st century version of the bottom rung of society. See, it's easy to judge the Pharisee and be like, yo, I, me, I would never be like that. But when real life smacks us in the face, we subconsciously or not so secretly turn into Pharisees. And the big problem with that is we make it hard for people to experience Jesus. That's when we become sucky, judgmental Christians. We have the relationship with God, but we don't show it to other people. We become the Pharisee, and we're filled with all kinds of intellectual knowledge about the Bible, and there's all kinds of information, but there's no love and there's no action. Going back to the story, the fault of the Pharisee isn't that he had a lot of intellectual information. It was that he was so intellectually awesome and knew all about religion that he thought he didn't need Jesus. This condition exists today. We all know it does. We know people who can quote the Bible, post the Bible on social media, carrying around their Bible, blah, 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 blah. You know so much about Jesus, you forget to be in need of Jesus. There's a dude named Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley is a church planner. He has a very successful church plant in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and admittedly, when church planners get together, it's a little bit of a weird culture, uh, but for the most part, it's really cool because everybody is trying to do their best to introduce Jesus to people in the towns where they live, but every church planner in America knows Andy Stanley. And just to get you into the mindset of what church planners think about Andy Stanley, I have long since forgotten who is cool and popular in culture, but whoever the person is that makes all of us be like, oh my gosh, that's her, that's him, they're looking at me, they're looking right at me, they're right there. Forget about the fact that there are 7,000 other people in the room, they're looking right at me and our souls are connecting in this moment, social media brag. Whoever that person is. That's Andy Stanley, the church planners. And this is what Andy Stanley says to Christian people and specifically to Christian church leaders. People are far more interested in what works than what's true. I hate to burst your bubble, but virtually nobody in your church is on a truth quest, including your spouse. They're on a happiness quest. As long as you are dishing out truth with no, there, here's no dishing out truth with no, here's the difference, it will make tact on the end, you will be perceived as irrelevant. You may be spot on theologically, but like the teachers of the law in Jesus' day, aka Simon the Pharisee, nobody will want to listen to you. And your kids are going to confuse your church with the entire church, and once they're out of the house, they probably won't visit the church house, then one day they'll show up in a church like mine and want to get baptized again because they aren't sure the first one took. I'll be happy to pastor your kids, but I'd rather you face the reality of the world we live in and adjust your sails. Andy Stanley gets it. In Tennessee, we would say he's smelling what Jesus is stepping in. So if you are a sucky, judgmental Christian, if you have sucky, judgmental Christian tendencies, there are a couple of things I want to point out to you. Nobody cares what you know. The best thing that you can do for Jesus is to be like the sinful woman. Don't give side glares. 
Stop hiding your children, pretending to be protective, but you're really just protecting what's in your own heart. Don't pretend to love. Instead, model Jesus. That's what this church is trying to do. This church is going to be a church that openly embraces sinners, both within our doors and out in the community. Our relationship with current and former addicts, fill in the blanks, sex, pornography, social media, internet, shopping, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. That relationship is going to be driven by love, not fear. We welcome the single black mom from the south side of Chicago, and we engage with a poor white family from southern Appalachia. We refuse to put up roadblocks that make it hard for people to find Jesus. Specifically, what we call that here at Collective is embracing grace and truth. We work incredibly hard to make this place a welcoming place for people to come and experience Jesus. My family moved here to be a part of this church. I love the South. I'm very proud of the fact that I spent a lot of time in the South. But we chose to be here, to intentionally live here because of this church. Because we know that Collective is doing everything that it can to make it really hard for people in Frederick to go to hell. And we want to be a part of that. Don't be the person who cares more about being right about the Bible than you do the fact that people are far from God. This church is not going to be. So let's wrap this up. I got a couple of action items, some homework for you. I am a professor by trade, so that's very natural for me. Number one, gut check time. Are you willing to fully embrace grace and truth? Grace, endless second chances. Truth, Jesus gives us a better way to live. You need both. Maybe another way to say this is, are you willing to embrace making your life harder? Are you making it hard for people on the bottom rung of society to come to church? It takes a bunch of bravery to walk in that door. We say, you're welcome here. It's hard to open up and talk about money. It's hard to, to tell you that you should trust God with your money. Money is tied to messy relationships and bad habits. We talk about it anyway. The vision and model of this church openly embraces a harder, more difficult life. And if you aren't ready for that, really, that is okay. We won't judge you or be mad at you, but we do want to let you know how we do church here because it is what Jesus modeled for us. Second, go home this week and have a conversation with somebody you trust. Family, chosen family, friends, somebody from this church. I want you to open up the conversation by saying, I want you to be honest with me, even if you hurt my feelings. And then sit and listen, non-defensively, with an open mind, open heart. And when they're done... Tell them, thank you for being brutally honest and stabbing you in the front, because that's what real friends do. You get to ask one question before you listen. That question is, how am I making it hard for people to come to Jesus? And then when you're done with that conversation, ask Jesus the exact same thing. How am I making it hard for people to get to know you? Finally, if you're far from God today, you have homework too. Go back and read the story again, more than once, multiple times. Pick up things that you missed the first time and wrestle with the tension of if the Jesus that you are reading about in the Bible is different than the crappy experiences that you have had with Christians in the past.
It all comes down to this. Jesus forgives sins. People complain about it. Jesus does it anyway. That's exactly what verse 49 of the passage that we looked at today says. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? They're asking, who is this dude? He forgives sins. He welcomes sinners. He intentionally spends time with sinners. Jesus answers the question of, do you notice me? Do you care about me? He cares about you enough to forgive your sins, begin a relationship with you. That's why this church was started, to introduce you to that Jesus. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for today. I thank you for the people that are here in this room, reading and learning about Luke and the fact that he points to Jesus. And Jesus is so accessible to us, and Luke makes that really clear. Thank you that you are so accessible to us, God. And I pray for all of us in the room, we can go home and have the hard conversation of what am I doing to make it hard for people to experience Jesus. We thank you that you want to have a relationship with us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.